God speaks and demonstrates to His people that we are redeemed, saved, and made new. Peace to you, friends and members. My name is Luke, and my wife, Anita, and I are members here with our four kids, and I serve as an elder for the church. And it is a privilege to open God's Word with you today. Uh, but before we go into God's Word, I want to introduce our passage with a parable that is not from the Bible. It's a parable about the blind man and the elephant. I think many of us have heard this parable, which originated in India, and it's often told as a children's story. So Lillian Quigley, uh, in her children's book, retells this famous parable of six blind men who encounters an elephant for the first time. In the story, each man touches a part of the elephant and draws his conclusion of what an elephant is like. The story goes, the first blind man put out his hand and touched the side of the elephant. He said, how smooth, an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand and touched the trunk of the elephant. He said, how round, an elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and touched the tusk of the elephant. He said, how sharp, an elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. He said, how tall, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant. He said, how wide, an elephant is like a fan. Finally, the sixth blind man put out his hand and touched the tail of the elephant. He said, how thin, an elephant is like a rope. So an argument ensued with each blind man thinking his own perception of the elephant was the correct one. But the Raja, which is a prince in the palace, awakened by the commotion, called out from the balcony. He said, the elephant is a big animal. Each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. Enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind man reached an agreement. Each one of us know only a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. Well, the moral of the story is, we all have differences. So if we are in conflict with others, we should be humble and recognize our limitations and our need for other perspectives. I also read, read about this parable being applied, you know, perhaps wrongly. You know, some people say there are some that apply this parable to religion and said that no one has a full vision of the truth or of God. We need all religion of the world to understand the full truth about our spiritual reality and we need to piece together our understanding of God. Well, I don't believe that is true. Now, our scripture today does talk about people being blind, but does that mean that someone who is blind can't have the full picture of God? 
we do live in a postmodern world where we are heavily influenced by the view that absolute truth or, or kind of in, in this parable, a complete picture of the elephant, that absolute truth is unattainable. So each person creates their own value or views by what they know or what they have experienced. Well, even if this may be your view, I pray that by knowing a little bit more about God's word today, God will form your view. So let's look into God's word. So today we're back in the book of Isaiah in chapter 43. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to Isaiah chapter 43. Our main text will be from verse 1 to verse 21 of Isaiah 43. Last time when I preached, we learned that the real God, Israel's God, is incomparable. However, God's people, the Israelites, continue to fail in keeping their covenant with God and rebel against him. They are judged for their disobedience and given to exile during this time. In the chapter before today's text, chapter 42, verse 19 and 20, talking about the Israelites, it says, Who is blind but my servant, or death as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but does not hear. So here God is accusing the Israelites of not listening to his messengers and, turning, and, and not turning back to him. And also not seeing the work of God that has done and, and acknowledging those work of the Lord. Then a little later in chapter 42, verse 24, it says, Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose ways they would not walk, whose law they would not obey. So it is Israel's sin and disobedience that caused them to be in exile under God's judgment. And this brings us to our verses today. Isaiah 43, 1-21. It is also printed in the bulletin so you can follow along. Our passage today starts with the word, but... No, but connecting to the previous section, but meaning despite Israel's failure, God will still bring about his purpose. So let me read it for us. Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 1. But now, says, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, and honor, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declare and save and proclaim when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackal and the ostrich, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The main idea for our passage today, I believe, is this. God speaks and demonstrates to his people that we are redeemed, saved, and made new. As an outline, we'll have three truths about God's people. God's people are redeemed for God's glory, verse 1 through 7. Number one, redeemed for God's glory. And number two, God's people are saved to be God's witnesses, verse 8 through 13. Saved to be God's witnesses. Number three, God's people are made new to declare God's praise, verse 14 to 21. May new to declare God's praise. Redeem, save, and may new. So the first truth, God's people are redeemed for God's glory from the first section, verses 1 to 7. So let's look back at verse 1. But, the, but now, thus says the Lord. First thing we notice is that the Lord speaks. God speaks through his prophets like Isaiah and speaks through his words in the Bible. God is not like the elephant from the parable that I shared in the very beginning. He doesn't just stand there silently and waiting for us to figure out who he is. God speaks. He makes himself known to his people. And what does God say? First, he tells his people who he is. He created them, and he formed them. Then God says, fear not. He said it twice in this first section. First in verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
And second, in verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. And why would God say, fear not, unless there is something to fear? For the Israelites, them being judged and in, 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 in exile, might cause them to fear that they have been maybe discarded by God, that they might have been abandoned by God. And even more so, maybe they realize they deserve to be in captivity, so they fear that judgment. But God says, fear not. Why? Well, look at all the quote-unquote eyes in this section. God says, I have redeemed you. I have called you. Verse 2, I will be with you. Verse 3, I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. Verse 4, I love you. Verse 5, I am with you. I will gather you. What is the reason to not fear? God says, I. I am the reason you should not fear. God tells Israel, do not be afraid of Assyria and Babylonia who are your captors. They're being used by me to form you. So judgment is used by God to form his people, just like discipline and corrections are used by a parent to form a child. Let me say that again. Judgment is used by God to form his people, just like discipline and correction are used by parents to form a child. Are you in a place where you are afraid? Maybe you don't have much saving left. Your job isn't secure. Maybe you're still waiting for that special someone, and time is ticking. Maybe you're moving into a new situation, and there are so much unknown and uncertainty ahead. Maybe you want something really, really bad, but you don't know if you will be able to get it. Maybe you feel alone, and that no one really understands you. Is there something causing you fear? Now close your eyes. You can go ahead and close your eyes. Think of the things that is causing you fear. Think of the things or a thing that is causing you fear. And here God says, Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you. I will be with you. I am the Lord your God, your Savior. I love you. I am with you. I will gather you. For those here that truly want to come before God, repeat in your heart and pray with me. God, forgive me for not hearing you and not believing in you. Help me to hear you so I will not let fear overtake me. Amen. You can open your eyes now. Now, this situation that is causing you to be afraid, if you allow it, they can be used by God to form you. This situation that is causing you to be afraid, if you allow it, they can be used by God to form you. Let's get back to the passage. I think there are two more powerful phrases in this section that can help us to believe God saying, fear not. It does not start with I, 
but instead you. God says in verse 1, you, you are my. And in verse 4, you, you are precious in my sight. You are precious in my eye. The Israelites belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord God, and they are treasured by the Lord God. And when we come repenting before God, it also shows that we belong to Him and are treasured by Him. So if you pray with me earlier, hear this from God. God says, you are mine. You are precious in my eyes. You are not discarded. You're not abandoned. You belong to me, and you are treasured by me. If you truly believe who God is, Him saying, fear not, should give us great assurance. That even when we are disciplined and suffer great consequences for our failures, instead of rejecting us and putting us down, God does not give up on us. And he uses these pains to form us because we are his and we are precious in his eyes. Well, the amazing thing is that God not only speaks, he also demonstrates his truth so his people can see and observe. From verse 2 to 4, God shows what he has done. Israelites can take notice of God's past actions as assurance of the future. So look in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, this is referring to God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt in Exodus, and they pass through the waters of rest, the, the Red Sea. It represents being able to pass through seemingly impossible situation because God is with them. Through the rivers is, a, is reminding the Israelites about how Joshua led them through the Jordan River into the Promised Land after 40 years wandering in the desert. That even though the river was at flood stage, it was stopped and allowing the Israelites to pass and not overwhelm them. When you walk through the fire there, might have been reminding the Israelites of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends that defy a king who wanted them to worship an idol. They were thrown into the fire, the fire and the flame representing trials and testing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not burned or consumed by the fiery furnace. Instead, God walked in the flame with them and resulted in the king glorifying God. What is the point of God referring to these events, but talking about the future? The guy is saying, look and see. See what I've done in the past so that when you pass through seemingly impossible situations, when you walk through overwhelming times, I will be with you and you will not be overwhelmed by them. God uses this pattern again to show the Israelite what he did and what he will do. In verse 3, I give Egypt as your ransom. It's referring again to the Exodus. That God gave the Egyptian army to destruction to save the Israelites. Cush and Seba are nation conquered by Persia, which eventually allowed the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And verse 4 says, I give men in return for your peoples in exchange for your life. Again, this idea of redemption. To redeem means to compensate 
for the failure of something. And when used in this context, it means a payment has to be given to regain the possession of his people. That God had to give us something to redeem, to ransom, to exchange for his people. That Israel's disobedience and sin could not just be be hand-waved away because God's justice, because of God's justice, they had to be dealt with. They needed to be redeemed with a cost. But you see, it will never be enough to just give more men and more people to redeem God's people. We know from Israel's history, they kept failing. God has to provide a solution that will work once and for all. Verse 5 says, Bring his people's offspring from the east and from the west. Once and for all, as verse 6 says, Bring his sons and daughters from the end of the earth. How will God redeem? As verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name. Well, God had to give Jesus. God had to give his only son to redeem his people once and for all. God had to give someone who is everlasting and perfect to perfectly redeem his people forever and ever. Let me repeat that again. God had to give someone who is everlasting and perfect to perfectly redeem his people forever and ever. In the Gospel of Luke, a man asked Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Sounds simple, right? But if we're honest with our self-centeredness and selfishness, we know we're not able to do that. To love God with all our, our being and to love others as ourselves. God tells us that eternal death is a consequence of failing to do that. This is the reason Jesus had to be given over to death to redeem his people, to be a substitute payment, to gather a people called Christians, to bring his people back from all heading to eternal death. If you never heard this before, or if you've heard it but never really understood it until now, today is the day to believe that Jesus died, but being perfectly righteous God raised him from the dead. So whoever believe and repent in him will inherit eternal life. This is the gospel. Let me ask one last question for this section. Why? Why are we redeemed by God? One I mentioned before, because God says, I love you and you are pressured in my eyes. But I believe more importantly, look at verse 7. God says, it is for my glory. It is for my glory. The glory of God is a display of who God is. 
God's people are redeemed for God's glory, meaning redeemed to display who God is. Because of that, we can understand why. Why God was spare nothing in achieving His will. So as an application for this section, learn to hear God's voice in the midst of our culture's voices. Learn to hear God's voice in the midst of our culture's voices. You know, what does God say about things like body image, relationship expectations, career goals? You know, God says you are beautifully and wonderfully made. God says, put me first in relationship. God says, work as if you're working for me. You know, do, do, the voice, do the voices around us align with what God says? If they do, great. If not, we must reject those voices and listen to God. We must reject those voices and listen to God. We should move on. As we look at the next section from verse 8 to 13, God continues to speak and reveal himself so others can hear and see him. The truth for this section is that God's people are saved to be God's witnesses. God's people are saved to be God's witnesses. Verse 8 says, People who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. You know, what, what is this talking about? Now we see in Isaiah chapter 42, 18, something similar. And it's written, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. And even our scripture reading from today, from Matthew, you know, Jesus said, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Jesus is referencing Isaiah chapter 6 there. So what is this, what is all this talking about being deaf but hearing, being blind but seeing? You see, it's about understanding. Even though these people have eyes and have ears, but they might as well have been blind and deaf because they don't understand what they see and what they hear. Or maybe they choose to ignore what they see and what they hear. As we go back to our passage, starting verse 9, you know, it's set up like a court trial, it's like a trial scene, with all the nations and, and, and peoples gathering there. When God says, who can declare this and show us the former things? He's challenging anyone to match his proven ability to bring about his purpose in history. Now basically, God calls his own shot. When God says something will happen, it will happen, and he has proven it. And verse 10 says, God's people, the Israelites, are his witnesses. 
bearing witness to the fact that He alone is the true God, and He alone, verse 11 says, is the only Savior. Look how many times He says, I am, in just verse 13, 10 to 13. So what are God's people bearing witness to? No, because God is their Savior, they are bearing witness to being saved. Say when they should have been destroyed by the Egyptian army. Say when they should have been swept away by the raging Jordan River. Say being told that they will return from their exile and captivity. But more importantly, say to be God's witnesses to the world, showing that there is no other real deity. No other lowercase God can declare and proclaim and have history to prove it right. Verse 13 says, verse 13 says, There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Israel is God's witness to the rest of the nation of who he is. The only God, the only Savior. Now this theme is the same from the Old Testament to the Old Testament uh, to the New Testament. Jesus in, in Acts 1a similarly says to his believers, He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so believers are saved to be Jesus' witnesses. Christians are now saved to be his witnesses. You know this hits particularly personally for me and for Anita. It was over 14 years ago that we moved from the U.S. to China. Now back then we wrote a letter to friends and family asking for support with, with, with prayers for, for our move. In the letter, the first question we answered was this, why do you want to go to China? And this is what we wrote. We wrote, Perhaps the simpler answer is, quote-unquote, to witness. First, to witness the work that God is already doing in China. And second, to witness to others for Him. God has shown us what a mission-minded God He is, calling all His believers to play a role in missions. And ever since college, we wonder if perhaps, perhaps our specific role might be played out somehow in China. Well, since we have been here, we have witnessed God's protecting a generation of older local believers here. We have also witnessed Him raising up a new generation of younger local believers here. I am a witness that God worked in me to help me depend on Him when He puts me in very difficult work situation in my previous job. Many of you here we have heard and seen how God has worked in your lives, how he has saved you from the path of sin and death and bring you into his glorious light. And even now, how God is forming and transforming you. So hear and understand now, you are saved. You are saved to be his witnesses just by your inherent being. God's people are saved to be God's witnesses as a display to the world. 
God's mission is to gather and bring all his sons and daughters from the ends of the earth. God says in verse 13, I work, and who can turn it back? No one can stop God. Jesus faithfully completed his work on the cross. Our work is to understand what we have saw, what we heard of the work of Jesus and believe. And when we believe and are saved, we are witnesses that need to live a life that reflects him and seek opportunity to testify or tell of what God has done in us. When we work to be God's witnesses, we work with God in a work that cannot be turned back. One application for this is to see God's movement in our world and join this work as his witnesses. So in case you haven't noticed, God's movement in our world has been this. The gospel of Jesus Christ started in Jerusalem and spread and is spreading east to west, making its way around the world to get back to Jerusalem. The gospel of Jesus Christ started in Jerusalem and spreading east to west, making its way around the world to get back to Jerusalem. The gospel spread first to Judea and Samaria, as Jesus said, then stressed from Israel to Europe, from Europe to the Americas, to Africa and Australia. From there, it moved to East Asia, Southeast Asia. I'm praying that God will use things like China's Belt and Road Initiative to spread the gospel to Central Asia and beyond. Lord willing, moving from there to the Middle East, and finally back to Israel. This is God's movement. Will you be God's witnesses in this movement? To allow God to use your witness to make more disciples of Jesus from all nations? Right here, right here in Shanghai. And Lord willing, be obedient and to continue to be his witnesses somewhere else if he moves you. But this is my prayer. This is my prayer for us. Well, we should move to our last section, verse 14 to 21. The third truth for today is God's people are made new to declare God's praise. God's people are made new to declare God's praise. We are confronted again in this section with a God that is not silent. The Lord God, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator of Israel, the King of Israel, this God promised the Israelites in captivity that their captor, the Babylonians, will themselves become fugitive. The Chaldeans, which lives in the southern parts of Babylon, will be running away in the ships they came on, that these foreign nations ruling over them will be removed. Again, the Israelite can trust and believe God's promise because the Lord points to what he has done. In verse 16 and 17, the sea and mighty waters, the chariot and army that are extinguished, again, are referring to Israel's exodus from Egypt. And recalling God's parting of the Red Sea, allowing the Israelites to pass and closing the water over the mighty Egyptian army, quenching them, 
like a wick. What is amazing is that God's power is limitless. Even with the amazing work of Exodus from Egypt, God says in, in verse 18, Remember, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Basically, those former things are nothing for me. I can do more. Verse 19 says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Meaning there's going to be something even more spectacular. A new kind of exodus. Now what is this new thing? Let's see how it is described in verse 19 to 21. He says, He will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and give drink to my chosen people. What God is saying, where there is no clear path forward, He will create one. Where there is no natural refreshment, He will provide water. He will provide for His chosen people. I believe the new thing for the Israelite at that time is the promise of bringing them home to Jerusalem from exile. The restoration of Israel. But I believe there is more. The new thing that is foreshadowed is the exodus of his people from this broken world. The exodus of his people from this broken world. God brings his chosen people to their eternal home through Christ, the restoration of his kingdom. God brings his chosen people to their eternal home through Christ and the restoration of his kingdom. God says in verse 19, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? The truth is, the Israelites did not perceive it. They couldn't see it, even though the, prophets, the prophet Jeremiah told them about it. Let me read for you Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, this in turn is pointing to Jesus. The fulfillment of the new covenant enabling the Holy Spirit to reside in each believers. And what Jeremiah means by putting God's law in their heart is accomplished by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit who is God and knows his law is in their hearts. Jesus died on the cross paying for our sins is why God will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. 
Jesus in the institution of the Lord's Supper, when he took the cup, he said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ seals this new covenant in his blood. So the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We can be made new when we are in Christ. So what does it look like? You know, what does it look like to be made new? I think mainly can be made new in two ways. First, our identities are made new. We are now God's sons and daughters. We belong to God. We have an eternal home. We're part of his family. We're not homeless or rootless. And second, our spirits are made new. Our spirits are holy and righteous before God. Our new spirits give us new desire to fight our old selves, new perspectives to see our old ways, new hope that we're being sanctified and being transformed. So God is doing something new. Believers, you are part of that something new. And for non-believers here, you can be made new in Christ. So finally, our passage ends today with, in verse 21, that they might declare my praise. God's people are made new to declare His praise, to outwardly acknowledge and praise Him. You know, an application for us is to make intentional effort to declare God's praise. I'm so encouraged by our members sharing praises in our chat group about what God has done. And I want to encourage more of us to do that. And not only in our chat group, to do it during our lunch conversations, in our prayer meetings, in our Bible study, in our, in our personal devotionals to God. Many of us, you know, it is much easier for us to bring our needs before God in our own prayers. So just like you know, in the beginning of our service, we always start with a prayer of praise, focusing on who we have observed and known about God. And let us start our personal prayers also with praising God, declaring His praises. But we should conclude. Today we learn God speaks and demonstrates to his people that we are redeemed, saved, and made new. Redeemed for God's glory, saved to be God's witnesses, and made new to declare God's praise. Remember the parable about the blind man and the elephant from the beginning? A Christian apologist, Greg Koch, wrote this. The most ironic turn of all is that the parable of the six blind men and the elephant, to a great degree, is an accurate picture of spiritual reality. It's just been misapplied. We, we are like blind men, fumbling around in the world, searching for answers to life's deepest question. 
From time to time, we seem to stumble upon some things that are true, but we are often confused and mistaken, just as the blind men were. Greg writes, "How do I know this? Because the King has spoken. He is above, instructing us, advising us of our mistakes, and correcting our error." The real question is, will we listen? The king that Greg is referring to is God. As we have read from our passage today, God has spoken. He is above and able to see clearly our situations. God teaches us, rebukes us, and corrects us through His Word. So the question is, will we listen? Will we hear? And understand, and obey. God has spoken through His Word, and demonstrated with history. He is the Holy One, and His people are redeemed for His glory, saved to be His witnesses, and made new to declare His praise. Would you please pray with me, Heavenly Father? We we praise you. We praise you for being the only God and the only Savior. I pray that we would perceive that you are. We would perceive what you are doing and and understand your messages. We would trust you when we are in the wilderness, and we would trust that you will make a way. That you are forming and transforming us. That help us to be be your witnesses, sharing the work that you have. You have done in us, sharing it for your glory. We pray that your people will be gathered from all nations, from the end of the earth, that we would declare your praise forever and ever. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.